Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm recording this episode on Friday morning, the day after a fairly hectic and landscape-altering trade deadline. And here to break it all down with me, of course, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. As Shania Twain once said, looks like we made it. Uh, Great to see that we're both still here after a chaotic deadline day. Well, the deadline day itself, I guess, wasn't that chaotic. But the fact that Kevin Durant got traded at 1 a.m. made it somewhat chaotic. And I'm especially glad to see that you're still here, Wolfon, because I was worried about you yesterday. You were in full-on meltdown mode over the Raptors' lack of activity at the deadline, or wrong activity, I should say. I was having my own meltdown, not so much about the trade deadline, but about the uh, choice of lunch that was provided for us at the office yesterday. (laughs) I won't get into specifics because bad fast food joints sponsor podcasts too, but we were both upset. You, I think, a little bit more so. Is, and is, is that where you're going to start? Are you going to start ranting about the Raptors? Or are we starting with Kevin Durant? What are we doing here? Uh, no, I will save my Raptors rant. And I'll try to make it not so ranty. Oh. I, will, I, I will try to invoke some of that trademark Wolfond nuance and context <laughs> and look at it from every angle and see both sides. But I was definitely heated, not just by the the Pirtle trade, but sort of the whole concept of the Raptors. I was going to say plan. I What they wound up doing doesn't reflect a ton of planning in my mind. And I'm, look, every single front office in the NBA does a ton of homework, goes into every transactional period with a plan and a backup plan and a backup plan to that backup plan. So I'm not going to say that they were unprepared or didn't know what they were doing. I, I just, I, I look at what they wound up doing and I don't, I, I don't understand really the process that led them to, to ultimately do what they did. But we can get into that in a little bit. We should start with the biggest move of the day, I guess. Technically, it did happen on deadline day, just at one in the morning. And that was Kevin Durant getting traded to the Phoenix Suns. And really just the kind of theme of deadline week, let's call it, was the West, which we have talked about all year being wide open. And it still kind of is, but just in a different way. Instead of all these mid-tier teams, and we're not sure if any of them are really that good, and it still feels fairly wide open, but more so in the sense that there are A lot of really good teams that got better. And now, you know, after all year being like, ah, the West is kind of washed, you know, like the Eastern Conference looks looks like the stronger conference, honestly, which is not something that we are used to seeing in our lifetime. Now it seems like we're back to, you know, the West being the dominant conference because most of the significant moves that happened around the deadline involved Western Conference teams getting better. And the Eastern Conference teams that made moves made very minor moves. You know, the Bucks get Jay Crowder, which is a nice get for them. If, you know, he's still good at basketball. We haven't seen him yeah. step on a court in nine months. But uh, if he's the same old Jay Crowder, that's a that's a nice get for them. You know, Jalen McDaniels, a pretty nice get for the Sixers. But, like, minor stuff. And then the Raptors doing what they did, obviously, and holding up the entire market for as long as they did, only to turn around and trade a first round pick for Jakob Pertl 
Yeah, they trail. They trolled all of us. Um, but quickly on that Jalen McDaniels note, I really like that for the Sixers. Like I, I get what you're saying, and I agree. I agree with the fact that all of the you know best East teams made minor moves. It is still considered a minor move, but I think it was like a low key, really good move to turn Matisse Thybul, who is borderline unplayable in the playoffs because of his offensive limitations, into Jalen McDaniels who is no slouch defensively himself either. He's not Thibel, but he's no slouch defensively. And is a you know better offensive player with much more upside when they're both pending free agents. The Sixers making that move, so in my opinion, getting better, adding a more playoff-type rotation piece to their rotation, while simultaneously making a move that helps them dodge the tax and nets them an extra second rounder, like that is a very rare checklist to achieve in one move for a contender so again minor move yes not saying it's gonna tilt the balance of power in the east but a really sneakily good move for philly also look look Jalen mcdaniels is 25 if you know if they don't re-sign him if he ends up walking there's not really any risk here because you gave up fiebel and netted an extra second rounder in the pick anyway got under the tax but if you re-sign him that's a pretty good like young piece that you just added to your core. So yeah, I, I sneakily thought that might've been the best move made in the East, to be honest with you, which also is saying something about how few meaningful moves were made in the East. Yeah. Also just a kind of necessary addendum to that, which I wasn't aware of, but Adam Aronson, who goes by Sixers, Adam on Twitter made note of the fact that there are some, unsavory stuff in Jalen McDaniel's past. Oh, um, all right. Well, I'll be obviously wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I don't want to get into detail about it, but it's something you can look up if you're interested. And I just thought that merited mention. But let's focus on some of these moves that happened over in the Western Conference. And why don't we start with the KD trade? The, the all-in move of all all-in moves. The Suns shelling out Mikael Bridges, Cam Johnson, four unprotected firsts uh, in 2023, 2025, 2027, and 2029, an unprotected swap in 2028, and then Jay Crowder as well, who obviously the Nets wound up flipping to the Bucks for five second round picks. So if you're saying that Jay Crowder had a, a you know value of five second rounders, then you can add that essentially to the haul that the Suns gave up. Um, because they could have just dealt with the Bucks, obviously, and gotten those five second rounders too, right? So let's say the Suns gave up Bridges, Johnson, four unprotected firsts, an unprotected swap, and five second rounders, which five second rounders, I mean, the, the, they, those were just getting tossed around the entire day. Yeah. That was well, like... Why don't you share your conspira- your somewhat conspiracy theory with the with the audience? I I thought it was no, not a, not a conspiracy theory. I know, just a, just I, know. A general... I, I thought it was I thought it was a funny observation. Well, just because of I mean, obviously teams were reluctant to give up first rounders. That's part of it. But part of my theory of why these teams were just like looking to get huge bundles of second round picks was so that in the next few off seasons they can just tamper to their heart's content. And have this huge stockpile of second rounders and feel totally fine about paying the uh, the penalty for tampering. Not that they wouldn't have anyway. Like I don't think the Knicks are sweating the second rounder they lost for tampering with Jalen Brunson. But yeah, there it is. Um, 
so okay, the Suns give up that let's, massive haul for Kevin yeah, let's Durant. Let's get into it. Yes. What do you make of this trade? I know you wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Probably thought about it a lot. Are you worried at all for the Suns in terms of the potential downside risks here? Are you excited about what they're potentially going to do? Like, hit me with your your analysis here. Uh, yes to all of those. I am excited about what they can do. I think it was a move they should have made and obviously did. And I'm concerned about the ways it can go wrong. Let's go piece by piece. First of all, a team with Devin Booker and Chris Paul just added Kevin friggin' Durant. And even 34-year-old Kevin Durant is still outrageously good when he's on a basketball court, when he's on an NBA court. He is shooting better than 60% from two from two-point range for the second time in the last three seasons. He's up over nearly 80% at the rim. Obviously, we know in general, as a three-point shooter, as a jump shooter, he's one of the most terrifying players ever offensively. Uh, His length and know-how, his timing make him, I'd say, almost still an underrated defender, probably based on what the average fan thinks of KD when they think of him because of his offensive excellence. But, um... The defensive metrics all add up to the eye test and the physical tools that you would imagine make him a good defender. Like Phoenix is adding a guy that is still one of the just absolute super, super, super duper stars of the league and a two-way impact of those superstars to a team with Devin Booker, who was playing MVP caliber basketball before he got hurt, the best ball of his career, and Chris Paul, who Chris Paul no longer has you know, the point guard impact he had even as recently as like the last year, a couple years ago, but is still a tremendously positive impact guy. And is still for like a 34-year-old, 16-year veteran, 37-year-old, 18-year veteran, whatever Chris Paul is, is still way more impactful than anyone that age with that many miles on his body should be. DeAndre Ayton, who, you know, I've ragged on before. The Like DeAndre Ayton is a weird thing is a weird case for me because I feel like the eye test tells me he doesn't come close to punishing mismatches and switches nearly enough. And I feel like he leaves points on the board. The numbers will tell you he is absolutely elite at it and as good as any player in the league at punishing those mismatches and switches. And I think him being able to do that now with Kevin Durant on that team as well and all of the chaos it's going to cause defensively and the mismatches it will probably leave Aiton with sometimes. Like Then you think about the possibilities of like KD in pick and roll actions with either of Booker or Paul, whether he's run, like running them in almost like inverted ways or he's the screener, like the, the, the possibilities are literally endless for Phoenix's offense. Now, if you want to talk about on-court concerns, I still think defensively in the paint, especially like on the inside, I think they are very vulnerable between uh, Aiton's inconsistencies, but also the size of the roster and the lack of options outside of Aiton. So I think they're defensively vulnerable in the paint. I think there are some depth concerns. And then not even talking about what can go wrong on the court, there's the fact that Kevin Durant is 34 and has missed 38% of potential games since returning from blowing his Achilles out three years ago, four years ago, whatever it was now. So And he's hurt right now with one of, I think it's two or three knee injuries he suffered since that Achilles injury. So that obviously is a concern. Chris Paul, we know how snakebitten he's been in the past by postseason injuries. Devin Booker, who obviously I don't like, I don't think his long-term durability is a concern. But if we're talking about right now, he's missed significant time this season with a groin injury that has flared up twice this year. So yeah, like 
that's my way of wrapping up why I thought, yeah, it's obviously a no-brainer move you make when you are, you know, trying to win now. But there are concerns. Like, it's, you know, it's far from a guarantee. And I will say, even though I'm saying I actually I agree with them making the move, I agree with them selling the farm to get them because of where they are in their cycle and the fact that it's Kevin Durant, I will also say that if they don't win at least one championship, it is a colossal failure. They gave up essentially control of five unprotected first rounders, three of which, if you include the pick swap, will convey after both of Kevin Durant and Chris Paul's contracts have expired. Two of which, I believe, or at least one of which will convey after even Devin Booker's huge long-term contract expires. So again, I get it. You need to make that, like, that's what you have to do to get a guy like Kevin Durant. I'm not saying they made the wrong decision. They made the absolutely correct decision. You can make the correct decision and it still end up being a colossal failure if you don't win one. Like, you gotta win at least one. You have to win at least one. (laughs) I tend to agree. And I am typically very averse to making like championship or bust proclamations because i thought you were going to say you're typically very averse to agreeing with me well that too (laughs) it kills me to have to agree with you but it just because it's so hard to win a championship right so it can like really very rarely be championship or bust you just can't put that kind of pressure on any season and that's why trades like this are scary like when you're in that position where you're championship or bust it's like oh boy it's so hard to win one. And even now, like, okay, I think maybe the Suns are favorites in the West, but if they are, it's certainly not by any kind of overwhelming margin. Like the Nuggets are right there with them and there are still definitely some potential pitfalls for this team. So it's, you know, very, very far from, uh, you know, not even just a guarantee, but even like a strong probability that they're going to win a championship this year or next year. And the fact that, Yes, Chris Paul, still a good player, you know, despite having fallen off a ways from his peak. But he's going to turn 38 this spring. And if, you know, he encounters, let's say, a similar drop-off from this year to next year that he did from last year to this year, well, then, you know, the championship equity for this team takes another big hit. And, I mean, it's, it's just a lot of pressure on them to to stay healthy, to find that synergy right away, which I actually don't think is going to be that difficult for all the reasons that you mentioned. Like, I think in terms of offensive fit, it's basically perfect. Um, and I don't even really feel that concerned about the interior defense, like you mentioned. I'm Yes, Aiton's effort and focus can be inconsistent, but we've seen when he locks mm-hmm. in and dials it up, he's a pretty strong interior defender. And then you have KD there as sort of a secondary rim protector. And we saw what he was able to do in that role for Brooklyn this year, granted next to, you know, a superior uh, primary rim protector in Claxton, but still like, that's not my big concern. You know, if anything, I might be a little bit more worried about the perimeter defense. And I'm wondering, I guess, who is going to be that fifth starter between those four guys. And maybe it's Torrey Craig, maybe it's TJ Warren, who also (laughs) came back to Phoenix in this deal where it all started for him. Um, I guess either of those guys could work. If if you want to go heavier on the defensive side of things, maybe it's Josh Okoji, who's, he's a zero on offense, which is why he can't play enough for his defense to really matter. But he's one of the best point of attack defenders in the league. He really is. Yep. So maybe they have enough offensive firepower that he can actually start and his lack of offense isn't going to cripple them. But yeah, I'm I'm on board with, 
everything you mentioned about like the offense and like the pick and roll combinations we've mentioned before how KD is having maybe the greatest jump shooting season in NBA history this year. And you add that to a team that was already, I mean, Chris Paul, like a big part of his fall off this year actually is that he's just not shooting it nearly as well for mid range. He was at 55% from mid range last year and was actually over 50% in each of his last three seasons. And he's down to 45 or 46% this year, which is still solid, but by Chris Paul standards is, Below the level that we've become accustomed to him shooting it at. But still, between CP, Devin Booker, and Kevin Durant, I mean, that is just a ridiculous array of mid-range shooting. And when teams are going to scheme to try and take away the rim and run you off a three-point line, and those are the shots that are going to be available, and there's really no good way to take those shots away. And, um, you know, even if you try, like, those three guys combined really do have the playmaking chops to punish any team for whatever they might try to do to take away that mid-range space. So I guess if I'm thinking about concerns and what could prove to be their undoing, apart from the age and the health stuff that you mentioned, I do think it is still this concern about them not being able to get to the rim enough. And really that's been kind of a characteristic of this team for the last couple years. Like even like the year they made the finals, they were pretty much an outlier as a finals team in terms of how infrequently they got to the rim. I think they were like 28th in the league that year in rim frequency. They could have won that finals. They were up to nothing. Like a bunch of those games later in the series were super close and could have swung either way. So I'm not saying, you know, that their formula was destined to fail, but Ultimately, they lost that final series against the Bucs because while they outshot the Bucs to actually like a pretty comical degree for a team that lost the series, they got demolished on the interior. They got demolished on the glass. And it, like if I'm looking at sort of problem areas and something that might uh, ultimately be their downfall, that's kind of it, right? Um, and th- this is one of the teams, and there have been a lot of them around the league, that's actually really prioritized offensive rebounding this year in a way they haven't in the past. So I'm I'm interested to see if like they can kind of keep that up and that can be part of a, a more successful formula this time around where they're actually getting a lot of second chance opportunities that they weren't getting in the past. But then in terms of just interior scoring and defensive rebounding and things like that, I wonder if, you know, the way they got dominated in that Milwaukee series, if that's something that kind of comes home to roost once again, because First of all, even with Mikael Bridges there, right, who was like their best slasher, like probably the guy on the team who was the best at getting to the rim, but they were still one of the lowest rim frequency teams in the league. And now Bridges is gone. And KD, yeah, he's an incredible jump shooter. And so because of that, it really hasn't mattered that he doesn't ever get to the rim anymore, but he doesn't ever get to the rim anymore. And neither does Chris Paul and, and Booker gets there pretty infrequently. And even Aiton, who is humongous, is really more of like a mid-range kind of scorer and floater range scorer. Like when he's scoring, even on the backside of switches, on short rolls, things like that. This is something we've talked about with him a lot, right? Like he's kind of avoiding contact. He's going to that little turnaround or the jump hook. So that's the thing I would spotlight in terms of on-court stuff, even if everybody's healthy, where I'm like, yeah, that might prove to be uh, an issue for them. Yeah, I hear that. And I would say, I guess, not to you know, minimize 
the fact that that is a flaw, but how many times this season have we talked about the fact that there is nothing close to a flawless contender? Like, it definitely could undo them in the playoffs, and I am concerned about it, but I don't know if it's the biggest flaw afflicting a contender although that might even be a uh, an interesting thought experiment to think of like all the, the you know the best contenders right now and think who among them has the biggest flaw and what is it that might be a good topic for another day <laughs> yeah as i sit there and think about it and my mind wanders uh yeah yeah that would be a fantastic topic for another day why don't we table that and uh, maybe we'll hit it a little bit closer to the playoffs but i do think and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this before we've even seen this version of the team play a single game. But I do think it's the kind of thing that could really just come down to matchups. 100%. Like if they go up against a team like the Clippers, like jump shot oriented, not like an imposing or particularly physical team on the interior or on the glass. Then I kind of look at the Suns and I'm like, yeah, they just do this thing better than the team yep. they're going to be playing against. And I wouldn't worry about it where it really gets interesting to me. And probably the team I would be most fascinated to see them play actually is New Orleans. You know, or a team like that. Even if they were to get, make the finals and go up against the Bucks again. A size? Team like is, a team with size, right? Well, a team with size and like that is, yeah, really built to, to score inside and to get yeah. on the offensive glass, right? Like, are they going to run into the same problems that they ran into in the 2021 finals? Or is KD such a trump card? and tilts the math so dramatically that it just doesn't even matter. You know, like that's that, what I want to see is them go up against a team that is built in the opposite way, you know, contrasting strengths and how do theirs hold up versus a team that's built to, to score in a different way. Yeah. And I think that would also be interesting because I think the Pelicans, though they get to it in a different way, have a really impressive offensive interior that I don't really trust defensively on the interior. And so I think that also uh, is kind of a fascinating thing to consider if those teams match up. Yeah. And I mean, really, the Suns don't have anybody to throw at Zion. <laughs> you know, like no. that's no. not that anybody really does, but I know the Pelicans went out and got Josh Richardson, and uh, all it cost them was Devontae Graham, who needed to be out of their rotation anyway. So yep. good on them. But. I would have liked to have seen them push harder because I think, you know, as much as, yeah, the Suns got dramatically better and the Nuggets are still a bear at the top of that conference, like, there's still a path here for a team like that to make a run. Yep. And if I'm looking at matchups, I'm actually, I'm looking at Phoenix and feeling pretty good about my ability to actually exploit their weaknesses. And so I would have liked to have seen them take that opportunity and fortify their team in the present. At the same time, I can really understand them saying, okay, maybe this next couple of years is like Phoenix's time, but we got a longer runway. And when that thing runs its course, then it's going to be our time. And so we're not going to put all of our eggs in like the next couple of years basket. And like, we're going to wait this out until it really is our time. Yeah. I don't want to be a downer. I just don't, I don't, I don't know how much the Pelicans can really think about how long the runway is when like the elephant in the room is that Zion's health and durability are going to be an issue always. Yeah. Like I, I this is one thing when, when, you know, when we kind of broke down how the West stacks up now mm -hmm. um, and it, it's something I wrote and we'll get to that later. But one of the things I wrote about in my Pelicans blurb was that like, yeah, I'm with you in that, you know, I, I 
would have liked to see them make a bigger splash because I thought there was still, I think there was still a path there for them. But then I also ended the blurb by saying Zion's durability might have made it all moot anyway. Like, yeah, no, I mean that that's just the thing. Like, if unfortunately you could, if you could guarantee me that they were going to be fully healthy, which I know you can't do for any team, if you could. I'm like, this team's going to be in the second round, no doubt about it, and pushing either the Nuggets or the Suns or the Grizzlies, like pushing one of those teams really hard to make it to the conference finals. Like, even though they have holes, clearly, and and we've talked about them on previous episodes, you know, they're, they're light on shooting, they're light on rim protection, like those are issues for sure. I think their strengths are so overwhelming that I could still see them making like a serious playoff run. But yeah, yeah the... The uncertainty about the health is a big one. And it's kind of like, you know, we saw this when Ingram came back and he fortunately is looking very much like Brandon Ingram again. He's been great the last couple of games, but like, it's not just the time that you lose without one of their best players on the floor because Ingram's injury issues are, are starting to pile up too. You know, they're not to the same level that Zion's are, but like, they're still issues. And it's like, it's not just the time you lose. It's the adjustment period when they get back. And it took Ingram a while to catch his rhythm again. And then Zion's going to come back. And then those two guys together are going to sort of have to catch their rhythm again. And like, it's the lack of continuity, I think, that hurts as much as anything. So I don't know. That That's what makes it tough to kind of have the Pelicans in that stratosphere. But um, did you have anything else on the KD trade? You want to look at something like from the Nets side of things? Yeah, or? real quickly, um, I think that. Well, obviously the Nets, you know, aren't contending for anything without a star. But I think if, if like, when you look at the just depth of legit NBA talent, like NBA rotation talent there, and you look at the picks they've now got in that market, you know, the Nets seem like they'd be a really good spot for a star. <laughs> I think it almost feels like a few years ago again, where you're looking at all the depth and you're like, man... There, this would be a really nice supporting cast if they could land a star. Like, look, go through after the trades for uh, the Durant and Irving trades. You go through their um, their roster, like Ben Simmons, Mikael Bridges, Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, Nick Claxton, Seth Curry, Patty Mills, still Cam Johnson, Cam Thomas, uh, Utah Watanabe. So, like, they're crazy deep with legit rotation talent. It's just... And, and I think they'll end up being in pretty much every game because of it. I think they'll stay scrappy and feisty for the rest of the season. But obviously, yeah, they don't have that top-tier talent that's going to give them even a, a puncher's chance to win a series, let alone make a deep run. But it is really interesting that they are kind of back in that zone where you can be like, I can see a star going. They're like making sense there. And the, yeah. the, what I wrote at the end of you know the kind of reaction feature to the trade was that, look, if you know Sean Marks has rebuilt the Nets from the ashes before. That's how they went from the arguably the worst starting point an executive has ever inherited in the NBA to being in the position to acquire Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Hell, he almost did it again around Kevin Durant after trading Kyrie Irving, you could argue, based on the pieces that came back and, and some of the draft capital they had recouped from Irving and even the Harden trade. Now he's really got a fresh start. And even though they owe a lot of their own picks to Houston, and that's concerning, in terms of total draft capital, it's way more than Sean Marks even had before in his first kind of go-round with the Nets. So what I wrote to end that piece was that like, hey, Brooklyn, if you play your cards right, if things break your way, 
in that market, if you time things right, if you kind of use that future capital, you know, at the right time in the right way, you might be able to get a star and maybe, maybe even one as good as Kevin Durant. <laughs> no, I mean, look, the, at the end of all this, I think they come out of it in pretty good shape. Yeah. And by the way, sorry to interrupt, just in case anyone's thinking I'm nuts, I, in case they didn't realize, I meant that sarcastically. The point of it, it was like, they, they can go get a star, but like best case scenario is they end up hope, like everything goes right absolutely for the next few years. And maybe you get a guy half as good as Kevin Durant. That's what I really meant in case no one picked up on the sarcasm. Well, look, we know Luca is probably going to be forcing his way out of Dallas in a couple of years. And watch, watch today's unfiltered on the Score <laughs> YouTube. Shameless plug. Um, I mean, obviously, it's always going to be tough to get a player as good as Kevin Durant because there have been like maybe ten of those players in all of NBA history. But uh, like I was saying, I think at the end of the day, the Nets come out of this in pretty decent shape, and the the Harden trade is like the biggest disaster in all of this. Like the, the trade in and the trade out and where they sort of end up uh, on balance in that whole deal, like sending out Jared Allen, sending out all the picks, and then what they get back is, you know, not as many picks as they sent out, and Ben Simmons, who right now looks like a lemon. <laughs> so, you know, apart from that trade, which again, fiasco, like this is the benefit of, just signing really good players in free agency. Like they didn't give anything up to get Kyrie and KD. So even the fact that, you know, like it, it didn't work out and they trade Kyrie for, you know, a return that a couple years ago you would have scoffed at and thought was not nearly enough value to get in return for a player of his caliber. And you wind up having to trade KD and yeah, you get a ton of picks in return. You get a couple really nice wing players and Bridges and Cam Johnson. You don't get anything resembling like a star to sort of rebuild your team with. But like you didn't have to give anything up to get those guys. Like you can say, I guess there's an opportunity cost and paths not taken. But look, they took a worthwhile swing, right? Like they put together a team that a couple years ago looked like the best team in basketball and very nearly toppled the eventual champs, even with Kyrie sidelined and Harden on one good leg. So they took a worthwhile swing, they whiffed, and now they're honestly, essentially, right back where you started, like you mentioned. So again, that's the benefit of, of signing star-free agents. Is like you just get a really good player in the door without giving anything up. And even if it goes sideways, you probably have a chance to flip that player and and get some really nice assets in return. So you know, the the concern is like they're not going to be great for the next couple of years and then their picks are owed to Houston. And then like the picks that they're getting from Phoenix in the short term are probably not going to be great. But long term, those unprotected Suns picks in like 2027 and 2029 could be really, really good. And, you know, even looking like the rest of this season, they've built up such a nice cushion at 33 and 22 they're, I think, three games up on the Knicks, who are in seventh right now. So I like think that, they'll fall to the play-in, but they're yeah. not going to like completely fall. They're not going to end up with, you know, it, barring some crazy lottery luck, I guess, from Houston's perspective. They're not ending up with like a top five pick. They shouldn't. I don't think, I haven't looked at these two teams' schedules, which is really what it's good. Like, you know, I would have to do that to 
properly judge how I think this is going to shake out. I don't think they're that much worse than the Knicks that I would necessarily expect the Knicks to make up a three-game gap in the you know 26 or 27 games left in the season. I think it's very likely that the Nets hold on to a top six seed. What about the seven-game gap they have over the 10th-place Toronto Raptors? You, you I just want to use this as a segue? Or? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, yeah, the Raptors are 26 and 30, currently in 10th in the East. They have a cupcake schedule the rest of the way. And as much as I disliked the trade they made, it makes their team better. Like, it's a significant upgrade for them to have gotten Jakob Pertl. So we're very likely going to be seeing this team in the playoffs. Playoffs, not just play in. I think playoffs, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't disagree if, if they stay healthy. Whether that's a good thing is a, another matter entirely. If they had just made this run without shelling out valuable draft capital in order to do it and you know foregoing the possibility of acquiring valuable draft capital and sort of retooling ahead of a summer that is going to bring a, a ton of question marks in terms of the, you know, the team's financials, in terms of the happiness of the players involved, like all these different things. It's kind of hard to justify. So, you know, to break it down for anyone who's not aware, they traded a 2024 first round pick along with Ken Birch's basically deadweight salary, which he's on the books for, I think, $7 million next year. So getting off that, you know, was part of the, the bargain. Along with second rounders, in I believe I believe this year and then 2025. So 2023 second, 2024 first, 2025 second, and they get Jakob Pertl. And the first and is top six protected. The first is top six protected. Not only that, but that protection rolls over to 2025 and 2026. And I'm actually not sure what happens to it after that. I believe it becomes second, doesn't it? Or a second? I think it becomes a second. It becomes a second. So I'm not 100% sure on that. Don't quote me. Okay. It, it's exceptionally guess. unlikely that they will get a top six pick three years in a row. Like, So it's more about the way that that handcuffs them moving forward. And I'll start with how it handcuffed them on deadline day itself. Because subsequently, it was reported by ESPN's Zach Lowe that they were getting offers of three first-round picks for OG and Obi. They didn't want that package. What they wanted in return was like established players or, or like you know quality prospects, not just the picks, which in fairness, given the teams that were offering them, like Indiana, who has three first-rounders in the coming draft, but one of them is Boston's that could be like the 30th pick, and one of them is Cleveland's that could be like 26th. And Memphis, who is like probably going to be picking in the in the twenties for the next two three drafts anyway, so they wouldn't have been like great firsts necessarily. But once the Raptors made that trade to get Pirtle and sent out a lightly protected twenty twenty four first rounder, it made it imperative for them to be a good team. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to try and be good next year. I just don't like. I think the ceiling is pretty low. And so sending out a pick with that light protection on it and then kind of by extension not really being able to accept a pick-heavy package because of what it would have meant for the team moving forward, like, you know, suddenly kind of resetting 
and selling off parts, which, you know, potentially might've been the right move for them was no longer really on the table. It just felt like bad business for me. And I, I think they just sort of moved in the wrong direction here. Like we've talked so many times about the opportunity that they had to sell and they didn't take it. And now they're heading into an off season in which they have three foundational players, Pirtle, Fred Van Vliet, and Gary Trent Jr., who are going to be unrestricted free agents. They have something in the range of $65 million under the luxury tax. And if they're to bring back all three of those players, like that's pretty much the minimum, I would say, of what they're going to be able to bring them all back for. For a team that's going to be, in my mind, you know, one and done at best in the playoffs this year and not looking at a much rosier projection for the season after that. If they had made this exact same trade for Jakob Pertl the day before the season started, I would have said, giddy up. This is exactly what this same. team needs. This is a gl- like a glaring deficiency we saw last year that hampered them and lowered their ceiling in terms of being like what they could do in the playoffs last year. They were coming like the upward trajectory of momentum was was coming. I really would have said, very nice piece of business. You get off the Birch deal, uh, top six protected twenty twenty four team for a team who's trying to continue to build upwards. Love the deal. Raptors, I think, are even more of a force in the East now. Probably can't win the East, but they can, you know, maybe win around, keep building upwards with with a good core. But they didn't make that move at the beginning of the season, and the fact that they didn't address the glaring need for a true center rim protector seven footer at the beginning of the year is a big part of why they ended up in the position they're in this season. By the time you got to this point, you're four games under 500 in February. You are not close to contention this season. I can understand why Masai Jiri and Bobby Webster in the front office maybe thought, look, like we are obviously partly to blame for the way this season went. And if we believed in our guys the way we said we did, we should not have hamstrung them like this and hamstrung Nick Nurse like this by not giving them depth and another guard and definitely the rim protector. So I get why they de- rightfully feel their lack of you know offseason additions contributed to where the Raptors are. But at a certain point, you just have to cut your losses and realize you made a mistake, but now this season is pretty much lost. You're barely clinging to a playing spot at the deadline. Now is not the time to retroactively fix that mistake. You know what I mean? And so to then make this move essentially five months too late and to give up a first rounder that has rollover that potentially limits your like abil- your ability to trade other first rounders coming up for a guy who, yes, addresses a glaring need, but is also a pending free agent that you're going to have to resign. And even though he does address a glaring need, to me, still, he doesn't move the long-term needle that much. He doesn't move the long-term needle enough to justify giving up a future first-round pick for him when you are four games under 500 in February. In terms of the rollover stuff, which you had you know mentioned to me yesterday, which is the first time I had realized that they, they had the roll. I thought it was just it's top six protected, and then it conveys to like two seconds after that. I didn't realize the three year rollover. What I'll say about that is like it sucks right now. And if they want you know like this summer, for example, if they were on draft night, if they wanted to try to make a win now move using picks, they now can't. The only picks they can trade of their own are twenty twenty eight and twenty thirty. 
if the season next year, you know, doesn't end with them getting a top six pick and therefore that pick conveys, they will then have all of their first rounders again to trade right away, like after the 2024 draft. So yeah, it sucks that it does limit their flexibility for the next year and a little bit, but I think that'll go away quickly. But in terms of the OG thing, I yeah, it's disappointing if they didn't pounce on the chance to get three first round picks, but the OG lack of movement was way less frustrating to me and less concerning to me than not moving at least one of Gary Trent or Fred Van Vliet because to your point, now they've got three core guys hitting free agency this summer. And you know, basically, I can almost all but guarantee you they're re-signing Yaka Pirtle because you don't give up a future first when you're four games under 500 in mid-February for a guy who's not going to be part of your future. So they're re-signing Yaka Pirtle. And when you start thinking about the numbers and the money and everything you talked about, there's honestly no way they can justify re-signing both of Fred and Gary while re-signing Jakob Pertl for what this team's ceiling is. So if you already know, and I'm sure the front, like the Raptors front office is smart enough to know that they are probably not keeping both of them, and your only chance to get extract value out of one of them is, is going to be a sign-in trade anyway, I just you can't convince me they can get equal value or better value signing and trading them than you could have right now. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you could because it's like, hey, right now they're a rental, whereas whoever's signing and trading through in the summer is getting them for long term, but it's it's a, it's risky business. So the fact that they traded Pirtle, sorry, traded for Pirtle, gave up that draft capital without recouping at least some of it by trading one of Gary or Fred and are not going to carry all three of those guys past the deadline is what really upset me. And then also, it, it's frustrating from the perspective of like, even if you're like watching this team and enjoying them t- for the rest of this season, it's now got them in a weird spot where on one hand, you can be, well, the front office clearly still has faith in their guys. They just added to them. They addressed the one thing we need or one of the things we know they needed. I'm on board with you. If they're healthy, I think they will probably get in the playoffs now, especially when you look at their schedule and fine, like that'll be fun and whatever, but the cold, hard truth about that is when you consider that for at least the next year and a little bit, they don't have access to trading first rounders outside of their 28 and 30 picks. When you consider how capped out they're going to be for a pretty mid team, and you take everything into consideration, you now realize that for probably like the next year and a little bit, their best chance to add another impact player to go with their core is through this year's draft. And they, which they, they're now actively making their pick in this kind right. of draft worse. So that's what I'm saying. So you've, you've put yourself in a position where your best chance to get an impact player over the next year or so is the 2023 draft, but you made a move that debilitated and, and almost surely hampers your odds in the lottery for that draft, unless they like lose some of these upcoming, you know, cream puff schedule games and then it allowed like they then fully pivot to a tang and they just say hey pascal whoever we know this is gonna suck but we're gonna go all like we're gonna try to really build a winner next year here's the deal we brought yak we're gonna resign him you should be happy about that but this year's clearly lost we're gonna rest you here and there we're gonna make sure we take i think that is still on the table if like the next week or two goes sideways but it should have been on the table before thursday's deadline and yeah, the, the sequence of events where now like you've, you've backed yourself into a corner where the 2023 draft is your best chance to improve over the next like 15 months, but you've also hampered your odds to do well in that draft. It's, 
It's not good. I, I don't think either of us has been this heated or this discouraged by a Raptors front office like decision making sequence basically since Masai took over. And the one thing before I give the mic back to you, I do want to say because you know fans are fans. Like part of what makes sports fandom so great and and you know is the way people do overreact. Like you get caught up in the moment. I get it, but. I think you can say all of the things we've said and say, look, they're, it's a bad run here. They they need to undo this, you know, like find some way to undo this and get back on track. No doubt about it. But for the people that think like a good front office just all of a sudden lost their good decision-making ability or is like washed or whatever the case may be, I promise you that's not the case. And I'm not just saying that because we're sitting in Toronto. It's the same thing like, you know, you could say the way the Warriors ended up bungling the James Wiseman thing and whatever. Like, Bob Myers is still a good executive. There's still a good exec team in play. Like the truth is that when it comes to the decision-making processes at the pro sports level and at the executive level, even the best ones are not infallible. These are still good execs. They just made some bad decisions in my mind. Yeah. (laughs) Any front office, any executive in basketball is capable of making really good decisions or really bad decisions or decisions that are, inscrutable at the time that wind up working out really well or decisions that look great at the time that wind up working out terribly. Like look at Sean Marks's tenure in Brooklyn and you will see all of that in the span of, you know, two or three years. Like things move fast, things change fast and you never really know how things are going to work out. And there's still a chance this could work out nicely for the Raptors, right? Like the reason that they have been targeting a center that we have been wanting them to get a proper center for a while is because it makes their entire team make a whole lot more sense. It makes yep. their defensive scheme more functional. Um, you know, it hopefully means that they are going to be able to scale back some of their aggressive tendencies. And, you know, even when they are in rotation, like just having a big body to actually anchor those rotations and protect the rim behind their intense ball pressure is really valuable. But also maybe it allows them to play a little bit more conservatively, play some drop, give up fewer corner threes because you're helping a little bit less. and suddenly maybe their defense actually looks like the type of unit that we believed it had the potential to be coming into this year. And at the offensive end, they have a legitimate, you know, screen setting role man who can make plays on the short roll, who can kind of connect possessions with his ability to pass and keep the ball moving side to side. And it's a good fit in a lot of different ways. And I I do think it's going to make their team better. And if they can go into the off season, bring Van Vliet back, bring Trent back, Resign Pirtle to a, a reasonable number. Again, it's a lot of ifs, but if that happens, then, I, you know, they're still going to have those guys. And if they want to trade them down the road because things don't work out, then that's something that will be available to them. And given what's been reported in terms of what was out there, I actually haven't seen any reporting about what was out there for Trent. Have you? No, I haven't. I saw Michael Grange of Sportsnet uh, here in Canada reported that. The Raptors, I believe, wanted Terrence Mann and a first from the Clippers if Fred was going to go there, but the Clippers were offering Canard. Canard and Brandon Boston. Like, yeah. Right. The, Which the is Clippers for, like, yeah. Yeah. The Clippers apparently didn't want to do Mann and a first, which is insane. Like, I can't believe they wouldn't do that. And so, okay, part of that is, yes, Michael Grange is a Raptors reporter. That information is almost certainly coming from the Raptors front office. And I think after the way this deadline went, 
they have a vested interest in putting it out there that the offers they were getting were trash. Maybe that's, you know, those are the only offers they got. I think he also reported that they got offered uh, Grayson Allen and a first rounder from the Bucks. And yeah, the Kennard Boston package from the Clippers. Like if that's truly all that was out there for Fred, I'm fine with them keeping him and rolling the dice on being able to re-sign him. Because those offers or are... Or signing and trading him for at least equal value in the summer. Like, yeah, you know, without knowing what was out there, I guess it's hard to quibble. And again, I haven't seen any reporting on what was offered for Gary Trent. The the three first round offers for Ananobi, I would have been happy with them taking. But again, after they made the Pirtle deal, it became a little bit tougher to justify given that, you know, they are not going to want to be forking over a lottery pick next season. I just think, okay, so first of all, there's a log jam now where Pirtle's an impending free agent that they need to re-sign. He is going to be expecting to start. Gary Trent Jr. is an impending free agent that they're going to be hoping to re-sign. He's probably going to be expecting to start. Like he, he's reportedly looking for a deal in the range of like 20 to $25 million a year. Don't think he's going to be thrilled about coming off of the bench. Ananobi, it's been reported in multiple places, is not thrilled about his offensive role with this yeah. team. So, like, what? who's coming off the bench for this team? They've also, they have Precious Achua, who is like a guy that they're super high on, that they're surely hoping to develop into a starter-level contributor. Somebody's getting squeezed out. Siakam's obviously starting. Fred's obviously starting. Scotty Barnes is obviously starting. So then you have, you know, between OG... Pirtle, Precious, Gary Trent, four guys battling for two other spots in the starting lineup. I think if we're talking just straight up sensible basketball decisions, I think Gary and Precious off the bench um, is but the best how do you then, then how do you go about that with Trent about to become no, a free agent? Like, I, that agree, that's what I'm saying. I think that's the most sensible, strictly talking basketball decision, but strictly talking basketball ignores the elephant in the room that is Trent's pending free agency and and all that. So yeah, no, it, like I said, man, they backed themselves into a corner that is going to be very tough to get out of. If anyone, you know, can get out of it, Masai Ujiri is one of the guys, and this is one of the front offices that can find their way out of it, but they've definitely made their own job more difficult. And this is, okay, so we've talked about before how people shouldn't take what Masai said about playing for what, Yes, you know, during a, a season when they were playing in Tampa, uh, and they were in a much different situation, mm-hmm. big picture than they are now, uh, and, and like hold that against him uh, right. in in a completely different situation. I would go back to what he said when he first took the Raptors' job, which was, "We're not going to get caught in the middle." And that's where I'm like, "How do you square that with what they have just done?" Because I really feel like what they've done is consign themselves to the middle. And it's not comparable to what they did during the Lowry-DeRozan era. And I know there were times in that era where people wanted to blow that team up. That was a perennial 50-plus win team. I largely agree with you, but I will play a little devil's advocate here and say they became a perennial 50-win team in the 2015-16 season, which is when they also broke through, made the conference finals, and started a run of five straight years of 50-plus wins and five straight seasons of win, of getting to at least a second round with a championship in the middle. The two seasons prior to that, they were a 48 and a 49 win team. 
And the 2013-14 season, besides first year on the job, when the season did not start the way they wanted it to and they traded Rudy Gay, that was supposed to be what everyone thought was the signaling of a tank. They ended up going on that run with the bench pieces that came back from Rudy Gay with DeRozan taking a step, with Lowry coming into his own as a full-time starter, with all of those things going right. And at the end of that season, despite being a 48-win team that lost in the first round in seven games, Masai did commit to that core. And the season after that, which obviously went better than this season's going, they were still only a 49-win team that was seen as disappointing and then got swept by Washington before some changes were made, but the core stayed intact and they became that perennial 50-win team. So while I'm not disagreeing with you on the whole or saying that I think they're about to go on one of those runs and that five years from now I'll be talking about it again, I will say that there are actually some similarities right now to the 13, 14, 14, 15 ish era where they do seem like a kind of mid, like first round ceiling core mm-hmm. and maybe some tweaks to it and more retooling than resetting actually will send them on a path to more sustainable excellence. Not saying it will happen, but I'm saying there are some similarities there. And so I'm not like it. Yeah, that, that's what I'd say because there were those two seasons before they launched to like 50 win stratosphere every year. Yeah, you know what? That's fair. I, I'm happy to take a wait and see approach with this. Yeah. And I, again, I don't think it's out of the question that it winds up working out pretty well for the Raptors and they wind up vindicated for not trading any of their guys. And, um, you know, it kind of coalesces and they can go on that type of run. I don't see it right now, but I didn't necessarily see it back then either. And look what happened. So we can reserve judgment, I guess, until the off season. If one of those guys walks for nothing, it's a disaster. Oh yeah, and 100%. Even if the offers weren't what they wanted them to be, and it's not necessarily their fault, whether you want to say that they waited, they waited too long and the market kind of passed them by or you know, whatever other reason you want to throw out there and like whether it was in their control or not, it's still a disaster if one of those guys walks for nothing. So uh, why don't we take a quick break there? (laughs) We'll come back and we'll talk about some of the other Western Conference teams that made moves and how we see those teams stacking up down the stretch of the season. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright Cash, I mentioned off the top, this deadline was sort of all about reshuffling things in the West, West teams tooling up, potentially, you know, sensing an opportunity to make a run in what looked like a wide open conference. We did sort of like a rough power ranking of the teams that we see as being contenders in the West after the dust have settled here. Why don't we go through some of that? And I know we're going to start out of order, but let's, let's talk about the Lakers because apart from the Suns, I feel like they were sort of the biggest, they had the biggest makeover on or around deadline day. And uh, I think we wound up having them eighth, I think, in our Western Conference power rankings. Yep. That's still a big improvement, I think, from where we would have had them going into this, right? I mean, they are literally 13th in the West right now, so. Yeah. 
And also, I think, you know, after the sort of Suns and Nuggets tier, which I see as being kind of a cut above right now, and then maybe you could have the Grizzlies in their own tier, like a slight notch behind those two teams and a slight notch ahead of the rest. It's all like pretty tight, right? Like I think you could arrange the rest of those teams in almost any order. The thing with the Lakers is they clearly got better. They got deeper, which they needed to do. Like they were just playing a lot of not great players, regular rotation minutes. And by putting their 2027 first rounder on the table with a top four protection, by the way, the, the protection on that trade is super interesting because if it doesn't convey, it immediately converts to a second round pick in that same draft. Oh. Now, it winding up in the top four is still fairly unlikely, even if the Lakers are like a bad team in 2027. But the range of outcomes there is just wild. And so like, yeah. you know, unlike the Raptors, who have the protections roll over and that hampers their ability to use subsequent picks in a trade the lakers can still trade their 2029 pick or their 2030 pick this offseason like that the 2030 yeah. pick will become eligible to be traded so they can make subsequent moves using whatever draft capital is yeah. left to them yeah the range and we've talked about this and figured it out ad nauseum um and, and it drove me mad the range of pick they can give up in 2027 now is fifth to 44th assuming there's no expansion which there very well could be between them because yeah if it lands top four, they're giving up a second round pick instead. And yep. it, they would have to be in the lottery, which mm -hmm. would mean it would have to be, you know, they'd be one of the worst 14 teams, but the second round isn't set by the lottery. So if they finish, if they end up in the top four after the lottery, that means it becomes a second round pick, which means it would be somewhere between 30 and 44 as one of the worst 14 teams in the league. But if they don't end up in the top four, then it ends up somewhere between five and 30, wherever yes. the Lakers fit. So. There you go. Very complicated. So in putting a 2027 pick on the table that will land somewhere between number five and number 44, just a slight discrepancy there. In putting that pick on the table, it, it makes it so hard to judge not knowing where that pick is going to land, right? <laughs> like, You know what this segment reminds me of? And it's, uh, I mean, the audience, our listeners won't hear the full five minutes it took us to get to this point um, because you're going to edit out a lot of us figuring it all out. You talking right now very much reminds me of uh, George Bush's fool me once. Shame on you. Uh, they, what you just can't get fooled again. Um, yeah, it's, it's been headache inducing trying to figure this out. For our listeners, it will feel like a couple of seconds, but we spent a couple of minutes trying to figure all this out. Okay. In putting a 2027 pick on the table that will land somewhere between number five and number 44, they get off of Russ, and in a three-team deal with the Jazz and the Timberwolves, they pick up D'Angelo Russell, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley. Then they turn around, they trade Thomas Bryant, for Devon Reed and a couple second rounders, and they replace Thomas Bryant as their backup center by trading one of those second rounders along with Patrick Beverly to the Magic for Mo Bamba. So all told, uh, and we know about the Hachimura trade, so I'm not going to include him in this, but basically in the the immediate lead up to the deadline, oh yeah, and JTA also went out in that in that three team deal. So they turn Russell Westbrook, Thomas Bryant, Patrick Beverly. 
uh, Juan Toscano Anderson, that pick that's going to land between five and 44 in 2027. And they get D'Angelo Russell, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, and Mo Bamba. Did I miss anything? No. And the two things I like about that, they, um, in terms of the backcourt and the perimeter wings, whatever you want, they took a hit in terms of point of attack defense and perimeter defense, but they did it to acquire a lot more shot making and shooting. And then in the front court, they gave up a good offensive backup to become a much better rim protecting team and defensive team in terms of their front court. And listen, Bamba also does hit 39% from three on, you know, small sample size, but still, so it's not like they went all defense there. So I I actually really like that trade-off. It's like, you can't have everything. Mm -hmm. So the fact, yeah, they took a hit in terms of their backcourt defense and perimeter stuff, but they made up for it by what they got in shot creation and they really needed and shooting. And, and then, yeah, like I said, front court wise, they definitely got better defensively. I, I really liked the way they kind of did that. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting way to go about it. And it kind of gets at something that I still am concerned about with this team, which is that it's, it's still just a lot of one-way players. And so I'm curious to see what their best lineups wind up looking like and how they do or don't accept certain trade-offs and building those lineups out because, you know, Malik Beasley is like a game-changing shooter for them. Yep. They they just have not had a movement shooter of his caliber this entire season. He is literally like on a per-possession basis, the highest volume three-point shooter in the NBA. 15.4 three-point attempts per 100 possessions. Number one in the league. And they're like 26th in three-point volume and and three-point percentage. He's like 38% for his career. He's only hit 36% this year, which is basically league average. But that volume and the ability to shoot off of movement is so huge and is going to open things up for them so much. They'll run those inverted actions with him and LeBron. Like They'll have him running shake action and coming off of pin downs on the weak side to occupy help defenders. All that stuff's really going to help. But Malik Beasley, man one of the worst defenders in basketball yeah. this year. Like, yeah. you know, the way he gives up blow buys and, and ball watches, it, it's it's going to be an issue. And like him playing next to Russell is going to be tough. And him playing next to Lonnie Walker is going to be tough. Like finding the lineups where he can slot in and they can get the full benefit of his offensive capabilities without giving too much back on defense is going to be an issue. And then with Vanderbilt, it's kind of the opposite issue where he's a really good defender. And, you know, he brings more to the table offensively than Beasley does defensively because he really gets on the offensive glass. And the Lakers haven't had a lot of second chance creation this year. They're like 23rd in offensive rebounding rate. So that's nice. And he can pass a little bit from the elbows. Like he can do some things on offense, but he is a non-shooter with not a ton of ball skills, kind of shaky finisher. And... What does that mean in terms of how they use him? You know, like, can he work next to AD and LeBron in the front court? Or is he going to have to be more of like a 15 to 18 minute a game guy who is mostly just playing with one of those guys at a time uh, with like bench heavy groups? So that's interesting. And then I I actually, I like the the move to basically swap out Bryant for Bamba. Like Bryant's a really good offensive center. One of the most productive offensive players on a per minute basis this year league league leading true shooting percentage yeah um but in terms of like bomba being able to be like to anchor the second unit defense and then also probably play with ad a bit i I like that fit 
a little bit better. And like you mentioned, he he actually shoots it pretty well from three. Not that Bryant didn't, but like in terms of the defense, it's like it's leaps and bounds, man. Bryant was like a really, really bad defensive center. Bamba can genuinely protect the rim. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. And then like R- D'Angelo Russell's the headliner and going from Russ to Russell at the point guard spot, just in terms of fit, I mean, that's a, a meaningful improvement for this team. Dude, Rob Palinka had a better trade deadline than Masai Ujiri. I am down so bad. Right? I'm, I'm down worse than when I saw what the food selection was at the office yesterday. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going through it right now. I'm going through it. But yes, the, La- the Lakers got better. They got more versatile. They got deeper. And do I think, like big picture wise, is it still ridiculous that they ended up in a situation where I still don't even necessarily think like, uh, maybe they do, but I, I I still don't really think they have a championship ceiling despite having LeBron and Anthony Davis on the team. I think that speaks to how poorly this thing has been put together big picture, but whatever. The past is the past. You can only deal with what's in front of you right now. And right now, I think this front office actually did a good job if they were still you know trying to win right now, which they obviously are trying to do, of putting themselves in the best position to do it based on what avenues they had left. And would I pick the Lakers over a Phoenix? If everyone's healthy across the board, all the teams, would I pick them over the Suns or even the Nuggets in a best of seven series? No. But would they have a, at worst, a puncher's chance against any of the other West contenders? Yes. And hey, if you put, even at this age, if you put LeBron James just in a setting where, whether it's a one game as a game seven, a play, like whatever it is, I think there are a lot of people, and rightfully so, that would still t- say, hey, give me the team with LeBron James on it. So yeah. whether you believe they are, they have a championship ceiling or not, they're a hell of a lot closer to being that team than they were 48 hours ago. And I think LeBron and AD, with the way they've played this year, obviously AD, when he's been healthy, they justified making this kind of move. Like yep. They made it really hard for the Lakers front office to not do anything. And I was sort of worried going into this about them doing a half measure and sort of hedging as opposed to just, you know, either keep both picks or put them both on the table and try and get like a legit third star. This does wind up a bit of a hedge, but it's actually a justifiable one. It's one that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of like the players they got back. You know, Russell, like I mentioned, just a dramatically better fit in terms of his ability to play off ball around LeBron and AD. But like, you don't really get the playmaking downgrade either that you might've been worried about in dealing Russ. Like Russell can still work the pick and roll with those guys. I don't think he's any worse as a passer, honestly, than Westbrook is and his ability to actually hit pull up jumpers. He's like very sneakily shooting 51% on long twos this season. I think that's just going to open up those rolling lanes even more. And the team just makes a whole lot more sense now. And yeah, like, it's hard to see them winning the West, winning a championship still, but the front office gave them a fighting chance, which I think they had earned. And I think to their credit as well, the front office that is, they retained a certain measure of flexibility here. Because looking toward the offseason, it's like, okay, if it doesn't work out, they can still basically renounce these guys and get themselves to max cap space. Russell's about to be a free agent. Beasley has a $16 million team option, which could actually make him like an appealing trade chip if they were to package him, say, with that 2029 pick uh, around the draft, because I think that will be be before his guarantee date. 
Like they could still use that as a trade chip or just non-guarantee him and try to work the free agent market. Like they're still going to be flexible moving forward. And if they like the fit and don't see free agency as an avenue, then yeah, they can pick up Beasley's last year and they can re-sign Russell and Vanderbilt's on the books for like 4.7 million next year. Like they're in pretty good shape for the next couple years. So I think the the way that they were able to balance present and like short-term future was actually really elegant. Yeah, I'm on board with it. So again, yeah, we, we had them eighth in those rankings. And I think the, again, it's like, in talking about the Pelicans, you know, if you could guarantee that this team was going to be fully healthy, yeah. I think we would have had them higher. But the risk factor with AD health-wise is just too great, I think, to feel any measure of confidence. But if they are healthy going into a playoff series, like, it's going to be hard to pick against the team with LeBron and AD. And you might have said it would be easier, it would be easy to pick against them given what their supporting cast looked like before. But now it's pretty functional, you know? Yep. It's not exceptional, but it's solid. Between the last episode when we reacted to the Kyrie trade and I guess the first 70 minutes of this episode, if we're talking on the West contenders, we've touched on the Mavs, the Suns, the Lakers. Now, earlier in this episode, we touched a little on the Grizzlies and Pelicans too. So out of like the Nuggets, your Kings, who <laughs> did have nothing. ninth in the, yeah, did nothing. And, and despite the fact that they're third in the West and making you look like a genius for, you know, picking them to have a very good year, you also had them ninth in terms of ranking the West contenders after the deadline. So between Nuggets, Kings, Clippers, Warriors, is there one or multiple of those teams you still want to talk about? Yeah, I'll just really quickly say on the Kings, anyone who's read my writing this year or who's listened to this show at all this year knows how fond I am of that team. They're one of the most fun teams in the league to watch. They've been one of the best offensive teams in the league the entire season. And... I think they're going to make the playoffs, like not just to play in the playoffs proper. I think they're going to end their drought. And I think they could have a fun and reasonably competitive first round series. When we were ranking this teams, we we're talking about teams that we could legitimately see coming out of the West. Like we're talking about upside. And I just don't see that there with the Kings. Like in terms of top end talent, it's not quite there. In terms of defensive versatility, it's not really there. I would have liked to have seen them get a little bit more aggressive and actually do something at the deadline and, you know, address their sort of lack of a big wing defender, address their lack of rim protection, you know, address what I think is kind of a thin bench. It's just, There's just a little bit too much missing there for me to actually feel confident in them when I'm stacking them up against these other teams. And like you and I talked about when we were sort of doing those rankings, I think you can make a strong argument that they're better than a bunch of those other teams that we ranked ahead of them. I just don't think the ceiling is as high. Like I think exactly. it would have been hard to justify putting them ahead of any of those teams in terms of their top, top gear. But I'm interested to see sort of what it looks like in a playoff setting, like against sort of more physical and switchier defenses. And um, to what extent, I guess, their defense gets exposed. I, I still think they could be a frisky playoff opponent, but I just I don't see the ceiling there in terms of like them being an actual threat to win the West. So that's why we had them there, and it pained me to do so. But yeah, in terms of like the teams at the top, I still think the Nuggets are right there with the Suns. Yep. I, I get that the deadline maybe feels like a disappointment for them because of what their competitors did and because what they did boiled down to Trading Bones Highland, who's a player that I liked but had obviously fallen out of favor there, 
and was so deep in Michael Malone's doghouse that he wasn't even playing in garbage time. They didn't get great value back for him, just two second round picks, but he, again, they were done with him. So it would have been nice if they could have done better, but he obviously didn't have more value around the league. And uh, I guess they just had to do something. They had to move him for whatever they could get. So they sent him to the Clippers and then do something really interesting, which is they went and got, I don't know if they used those two Clippers picks to do it or their own picks, but basically they, they sent a couple second rounders along with Devon Reed to the Lakers for Thomas Bryant, who, as we've mentioned, is one of the most productive offensive players on a permanent basis in the league. He's a really good offensive center and a really bad defensive center. So what does that mean, you know, for the Nuggets second unit, which we have seen have so many struggles over the years and maybe especially this year. It's almost like the Bones Highland conundrum, but with a big man instead of a guard. Because with Bones, it's like for a while, they needed him to do everything offensively for that bench unit. And then with Jamal Murray kind of like able to play more minutes and starting to look like Jamal Murray again, which has been a huge development for Denver, he became superfluous. So now they have like, you know, the the Bones Highland of big men, like a really gifted yep. offensive center who can't defend. I don't know if, if that winds up moving the needle for them or not. What do you think? No, I don't think it moves the needle for them. I think he's another um, good bench player that probably sees his minutes cut in the playoffs. Um, so I don't think it moves the needle for them, but I also don't think they necessarily need it to move the needle. You mentioned everything the comp- their competitors did, but they're in first place in the West right now, and they have a team that is good enough to win a championship with a guy who has won the last two MVPs and obviously is in the conversation for best player alive. You know, the really good and well-fitting supporting cast around him. I, I'm sure there are people in Denver who feel disappointed just because like you're watching everyone else do something and Phoenix gets Kevin Durant. It's like, what are we going to do? But the truth is that they didn't need to do anything. And the fact that they didn't get better at the deadline is fine. They're good enough to win as is. They might not win because only one team does, Yeah, but it won't be because they didn't do something at the trade deadline. It will just be because you can't win even if you're the best team sometimes. Yeah, and like for we're going on two months now with them being a top six defense in the league. You know, this, this is not a mirage and maybe they're not top six overall, but like to talk about that standard that we mention on this pod all the time of like there's been two teams in the last what 25 years basically that have won, won a championship a without 10. having a top 10 defense yeah and only two teams in history that have won a championship with a below league average defense guess what the nuggets defense isn't below league average anymore there we go you know so they're meeting that they're standard teams. they're meeting that standard and their offense is so good and the way that jamal murray is playing right now Averaging like 25 and 8 on like 63% true shooting over his last 15 games. Now, do do I think that their defense is like not going to have holes in the playoffs that an elite offense like Phoenix's can poke and prod at? No, I don't believe that. I think there are certain things that are still going to be problematic. But I think they can be good enough. And I think their offense is so overwhelming. Like I said, I think they're right there with the Suns as sort of co-favorites in the West. We had the Grizzlies third. They weren't as active as maybe some thought they would be. 
and they wound up using the Danny Green sort of salary slot to do something maybe a little bit more underwhelming than people were hoping they would do. They reportedly put three first round picks on the table for OG Ananobi, but were rebuffed. Uh, and so they wind up instead trading Green a couple of second rounders, I think, for Luke Kennard, who addresses a very clear area of need for them, which is three-point shooting. Kennard isn't a perfect player by any means, but he is very much one of the best shooters in basketball. He's been over 44% from deep three years in a row, and he's at close to 45% this season. So for a team that was you know 25th in three-point percentage and 23rd, I think, in first shot half-court offense, that's, that's a kind of nice little upgrade. Yeah, the Grizzlies are fine. They've got a high ceiling. I will say, I guess, since I'm due for one like non-basketball, nothing to stand behind this take every, every week, I'll say, don't like the vibes in Memphis right now. They've lost six straight to West opponents, <clears throat> even though Josh said they're good in the West. They've been in a funk for a few weeks now. John Morant's been in the news for the company he keeps off the court and not in a good way. Uh, just a lot of things going on there in Memphis, and I just don't like the vibes. And with the teams around them getting better, making some big splashes, maybe they peaked a little early this season. They're they're going down. <laughs> they're going downhill. They're 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 not winning around. Not winning around. Correct. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They're a first round out. I'm I'm shocked Again, to be hearing I, this from you, and I know like I'm a, I'm a big Grizzly. You know, I'm a big Grizzlies believer. I I believe in the audacity of John Morant. I will, you know, give myself the out that I did preface this little mini rant by saying this was my non basketball IQ. Like I think we 99 of we we talk about what we talk about on the pod. We come at it with a level of basketball IQ that I think our listeners appreciate. But I also think our listeners appreciate that I am due for one of these kind of non-basketball IQ rants every week. And this one is that. Using um, nothing on the court as a reason for saying it. And strictly going by a vibes check, the funk, stuff going on with Joe off the court, I'm going to say bad juju going on here. First round out. <laughs> That's okay. my analysis on the Grizzlies. I, yeah, I mean, look, I can't speak to what is really going on there off the court the vibes are always going to seem bad for a team when they're in a bit of a slump which the Grizzlies are right now and you know Kennard for as much as I like his shooting and what that could mean for the Grizzlies offense but still has defensive limitations because he has a really short wingspan and isn't super athletic I actually think he defends pretty well in a team scheme but on the ball he's kind of rough so maybe he doesn't wind up factoring in the playoffs and it's sort of a nothing addition for them but I still I, I still have to feel fairly good about their chances just given how good their defense has been and no as you um, should <laughs> yeah I am surprised to hear you of all people say that because you have just been you're like you know jaw has this magical aura that sort of is able to lift all boats and take this team that has no business being as good as it is and take it to these heights so the fact that you're jumping off the boat is maybe uh the canary in the coal mine here <laughs> that things are going south. But um, I, I don't know what the hell Shannon Sharp did to these guys, but it's, uh, it's, it's all been downhill since then. And I was on Team Grizzlies in that debate, by the way. Um, okay, we had them third and we had the Clippers fourth, which I don't know. Like I said, after after Memphis, I feel like you could put 
that series, that grouping of teams in almost any order. I really don't feel great about the Clippers. They've been so underwhelming almost every time I've watched them this year. And they didn't really do the one thing that I wanted them to do, which was to get a steady-handed point guard. Like, no. Try you want to I, give up freaking Terrence Mann for Fred Van Vliet. Like, get out of here. You want you want to win the championship with your crazy all-in team or not? Yeah, that's what I didn't get. It's like you're you're as all in as all in gets right now. And really, you're gonna make Terrence Mann a sticking point. I know we already had this conversation on a previous episode, so we don't have to go down this road again. But like Terrence Mann's a nice player, solid defender, good slasher, but he's a low usage role playing wing. Like you have enough wings. Like and he's 26, you know, he's not even this like huge high upside prospect like i i can't really fathom them not being willing to put him at, maybe he wasn't the sticking point maybe the 2028 pick was the sticking point i don't know but that seemed like a missed opportunity to not get van vliet who i think would have really helped them and conley's the guy i think who actually probably would have helped them the most the jazz basically wind up sending out conley with vanderbilt and beasley in exchange for just the 2027 Lakers first rounder. So the Clippers presumably could have done that with their 2028 first rounder and gotten him, right? I I mean, maybe the the Jazz just felt better about betting against the Lakers future than they did in betting against the Clippers, but like... Not a bad bet. I don't know, man. I think they're still starved for playmaking, which he could really help them Mm -hmm. with. They, They did, in spite of that, undergo a pretty drastic makeover in the backcourt. In that Reggie Jackson's gone, John Wall's gone, uh, Luke Kennard is gone, and in exchange they got Eric Gordon and Bones Highland. Yeah, so I think they're worse. To be honest with you, you think so? Like Kennard's been good for that. He's been a part of some of their best transitional lineups. His shooting's been really important for them. I, I can sort of squint and see the theory behind it, where like Gordon and Highland both are guys who can really get to the rim. And I do feel like that's something this team has been needing. And Gordon, like basically they went from Kennard to Gordon in that trade. Like Kennard went out, it was a three-teamer. They also basically traded a swap in this coming draft with Houston for Milwaukee's pick. So if the season ended today, the Bucks pick that the Rockets own would be 28th and the Clippers pick would be 18th. So they essentially agreed to move down 10 spots in the coming draft and traded Kennard in order to get Eric Gordon. Player for player, I don't know that that's a, that that's a bad move. I don't know that that's a downgrade. Yeah. Like, Gordon's not what he was, but I think he's still a way more playoff-proof defender than Kennard is. Like, you can't attack him in the same way. He fits way better into their switching scheme because of how strong he is. And again, I think that sort of like downhill ability, the ability to get to the re- to the rim, which they just haven't had enough of, I think it's fine. Like, and actually getting like trading Reggie Jackson for Mason Plumley, getting a backup center, which is something that they didn't have, is a good piece of business too. Like, I don't think they got worse. I actually think they got slightly better. I just don't know that they got better enough, considering the issues they've had this season, and considering what they could have done instead. Yeah, I'm going to say the answer is no. No, what? They, did, they didn't get better by enough. Yeah. They did not get better by enough. Um, all right. I, I mean, the, the Warriors, 
we could yeah, do a whole episode on the Warriors saga, trading trading James Wiseman, getting Gary Payton the second in return. There's another one where it's like, objectively, that makes their team better. And so you just sort of have to think of like the second overall pick thing as being a sunk cost and not get hung up on that. You're trying to win a championship now, make your team better, do what you can. It's just, if you look at it in totality, trading the second overall pick, you know, two and a half seasons into his career for the guy who made your team as like the 15th roster spot on like the last day of training camp last season, had a great year, and then you let him walk as a free agent, and that's the guy you wind up trading your second overall pick for. It looks bad in totality, but I I actually like the addition for the Warriors. I think they've really missed GP2. And what he brought to them last year. Yes, the Warriors did get better at the deadline. Like in a vacuum, they had a good deadline. Not the splash they would have hoped, but they had a good deadline. I think you have to look at it in totality, though, when you're talking about James Wiseman and the sequence of events the Warriors went through here, where the question with Wiseman is when they drafted him, even when he kind of struggled at first, was is he going to be a great young player that is a building block of the next great Warriors team, you know, after this dynastic version of them is done? Or is he going to be a building block of a trade package to get the Warriors even more all in on like their win now window? And in the end, he checked neither box. Mm. Like he was traded for five goddamn second round picks less than three full years after being the number two overall pick. And then those second round picks were used to reacquire Gary Payton, who they let walk seven months ago for, you know, luxury tax purposes. They could have re-signed Gary Payton in the summer, traded James Wiseman and other stuff then probably at a higher value. And instead, they like they let Gary Payton walk and then sell low on James Wiseman less than a year later to reacquire Gary Payton. Like it it's really shameful if you want to look at a big picture. And I get it. I'm with you. I've said it already on this episode. Like, yeah, you can't think of things as sunk cost. Like, sorry, you have to think of things sometimes as just sunk costs. Cut your losses and make the best move for you at that point. I get that. That's why I said in a vacuum, they had a good deadline. But you take the big picture view here, you know, zoom out from the trees and look at the whole forest. And it is a shameful sequence of events in terms of asset management. Yeah, it's tough, but I still I'm I'm still on board with them doing it. Like yeah. how many times have you said like forget the two timelines thing? Like you got to make your team as good as it can possibly be right now. Yes. This is your window. Yep. They did that. No, you know, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not arguing with their their deadline performance. I'm not. I'm just saying big picture wise, it is shameful. Yeah, didn't it's, work out. Yesterday great. wasn't shameful. The the totality of how it happened starting from the beginning to then was shameful. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because so initially it seemed like they were trading Wiseman. He, he went to Detroit and they got Sadiq Bay back. But then it almost winds up being a three-teamer, which I don't actually know if it was part of the same deal or not. But Bay goes to Atlanta. Atlanta sends five picks eventually to Portland. And GP2 goes to the Warriors. So yeah. it seemed like if they wanted to, they could have had Sadiq Bay instead. What do you think of prioritizing GP2 over Sadiq Bay? I think based on the fact they're trying to win now, they made the right decision. Sadiq may maybe, you know, has that three and D upside going forward, but I think he's actually had a pretty disappointing season mm-hmm. this year, regressed a little bit. I like it actually as a buy low move for Atlanta, yep. who injects, 
you know, a, a guy with upside when they're already all in, don't have many avenues to improve. They get this 23 year old guy with three and D upside who's still on his rookie sale contract is under contract for less than five mil next year. Really like it for Atlanta, but I completely understand why for the Warriors and where they are in their cycle, they went with GP2 over Sadiq Bay. Also, I know people talk about it a lot and some people roll their eyes about it. It does seem like the Warriors and like the Steve Kerr, like high level IQ system of read and react or whatever is tough to pick up for a yeah. lot of players. And if you're trying to win right now, it's probably a lot easier to do it with Gary Payton, who's probably better right now anyway, but understands that system as well as anyone, as opposed to trying to help Sadiq Bey learn it, you know, as a guy who's still trying to figure out his own shit and game in, at the NBA level. Like, I don't think that would have been a good move for him or the Warriors at, in, the, in the middle of the season when they're trying to win now. Yeah, that's really well put and uh, a very good point. Uh, you know, just knowing that Gary Payton the second can be, has been, a, a rotation player who can hang in the playoffs, deep in the playoffs, like for a championship run, like playing meaningful minutes in the finals. Like they know he can do that, uh, in their system at least. So I think for a team that is super top heavy and has had issues with its depth this season, trading a guy who wasn't going to play for them in the playoffs, who's been basically a disaster anytime he's been on court this season, like they're just adding a player to their playoff rotation, which they really needed to do. And now it's like you look at um, whether or not it winds up being their starting lineup, but that lineup with Looney and the other four guys has been destroying teams all season. Those five guys plus Poole plus DiVincenzo, who's actually you know done a pretty solid job filling the GP2 role this season, plus Kaminga, who's come on really strong lately, plus GP2. That's a nice nine-man rotation like I think you can feel pretty good about that going into the playoffs so um yeah the Warriors have had a very very choppy season but I think they're still super dangerous which is why we wound up ranking them fifth in the west and then we had the Pelicans right after them who we talked about a bit already we didn't have the Wolves in there and I do think their point guard swap is really interesting but I think maybe we can just talk about that on a later episode because we mm -hmm. are running out of time here so should we just leave all that there? That's, uh, you know, 100, yeah, I think, 100 minutes on the trade deadline. Yeah. I was going to say, I think, you know, this this week warranted a mega episode of Pound the Rock. I will also say from a production note standpoint uh, for our listenership, because I know, Joe, you're taking some time off over the next week or two mm -hmm. uh, as we unwind from the grind that was deadline lead up and deadline day itself. So I'd say the two weeks wolfon has gone, I'll probably put one episode up. I'll find a guest, but I'm thinking we went a hundred minutes on the trade deadline. All of this stuff will be relevant as these guys start playing with their new teams and, and the West gets sorted out and we see what happens with the Raptors and all that. So I'd say most likely we will take next week off from any episodes and then I'll be back with a non wolfon guest the week after that. And then the week after that, Wolfon and I will try to give you two episodes of our usual programming as we then start the stretch run towards the playoffs. So enjoy these hundred minutes, however you want over the next week and a half, I'd say. Um, and then also, if you want me to get to a fan shout out before I give it back to you to sign us off here, I will go with, uh, goes by academic Raptors on Twitter at academic Raptors. Didn't leave uh, any info about where they listen from, how long they've been listening, but uh, did reach out after we recorded that episode with Trill to say it was an elite episode. So kind of a half shout out, kind of a half call out with academic Raptors. We appreciate you supporting the show and interacting with us on Twitter. But if you want a more formal shout out, 
you know, hit us up with some of the details of how long you've been listening and all that. But for now, I think this shout out will do. We've got a couple banked for the next uh, couple episodes, but the usual call out. Reach out on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo at Joey underscore double Y-O-U. Email joseph.cacharo at thescore.com or joe.wolfond at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from. Tell us a joke. Tell us what you like about the show, what you don't, whatever. And we will get you a well-deserved shout out at some future date. Yeah, thanks Cash and uh, thanks to all our listeners as always for writing in just for listening uh riding with us for you know the unofficial first half of this nba season i know we're a lot closer to being two-thirds of the way through it but actually if you take the playoffs into consideration we pretty much are at the halfway mark so all-star break felt like a good time for me to take a little bit of time off and like cash mentioned uh i'll be off for a couple weeks and then i'll be back to uh look ahead to the stretch run but for now Enjoy this extended breakdown of the trade deadline. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Mm-hmm.